Hi, welcome to a special episode of Insider Investing. In this episode, I talk to Purav Shah, who's at the founding team at Deserve and handles our global investing practice. In his previous life, Purav has worked on Wall Street with JP Morgan and UBS, and I've also had the pleasure and privilege of working together very closely with him in my previous life. In this show, we talk about the differences between trading and investing, the interesting story of Rick Guerin, why we should have a pact with ourselves when it comes to our money, and why asset class selection impacts your dreams much more than we think. Hi, Purav. It's good to have you on the Insider Investing Show. You know, we've been thinking about doing this for a very long time. I was actually very intrigued when we were actually going through your background and trying to set this up. We've had very different journeys. You've worked in private banking and managed money for the wealthiest individuals in the United States. And I've done it here in India. And sometimes it's also exciting to understand what are the big differences that you see culturally in how people manage their money. Tell us a little bit about the move from the US to India. How did it happen? And what sort of contrasts did you see with uh, your investors in the US? Hey, Sandeep. Uh, super excited to be on this channel uh, and uh, happy to be part of the Deserve journey along with you and Sahil and Vaibhav. So, you know, I started my journey almost 16, 17 years back when I, went, I was in the US. And uh, post my grad, I landed up working with some of the big uh, private banking firms in New York. It was a very exciting time in my uh, career because uh, I was always thrilled to work on Wall Street and uh, wanted to work for some of the wealthiest clients uh, with Premier Banking. From the big bull, how, how far was the From office? The big, we had multiple offices, Sandeep. We had uh, one on the avenues of America, which is 6th Avenue. Uh, and then we had our headquarters on the other side of the river in New Jersey. Uh, so we kind of used to hop on, hop off between different offices between New York and New Jersey. But we were not that far, you know, from Midtown to uh, downtown. It wasn't that far, actually. Uh, what was interesting about uh, working with some of the premier uh, private banking firms and some of the largest clients was that uh, we uh, worked very diligently in terms of preparing for our pitches. So I was on the investment advisory side and I would, uh, along with the rest of the team members, work for many weeks of preparing uh, recommendations for the clients, right? Which involves us talking to uh, several analysts within the firms globally as well. And then you go present the plan to the clients. The meetings go maybe one time, two times, you know, that time Zoom and uh, Google Meet were not really that widely used. In fact, I didn't even know about Zoom that time when I was in the US back 16 years. Uh, so it was all personal meetings. And, you know, once we met with the clients and they move forward with the recommendations, the journey went pretty smooth from there because, uh, it was whether on a quarterly basis or semi-annually we had touch points, but we really talked more about their goals and aspirations, you know, like if someone was starting a brand new business, we checked with them if they needed loan or financing needs, right? Or something as simple as maybe their daughters made it to the soccer team or something, right? These were very, very fluid and open conversations. And it was less about portfolio because um, we would do actually annual reviews and when i when i joined uh, these banks i found out that we were doing annual reviews i was really surprised that how how do we just review with clients on an annual basis i mean yeah they get their statements they get the quarterly notes etc but uh, how do we review the portfolio annual basis and the simple answer to that was that clients didn't care on a month to month or a quarter to quarter year to date basis they cared about long term returns 
even when we showed them our performance reporting for the reviews, we looked at three-year, five-year numbers for returns. It didn't matter what month over month the investment had moved. Wait, you wouldn't get calls from clients asking you to talk about the portfolio, what happened in the last week and how things were, what has changed in the portfolio in the last one month and so on. That wouldn't happen. We would get calls if they had any uh, nervousness in the market or they wanted to know what really happened. That really didn't force them to say, okay, let's open my portfolio. Let's dissect it. Let's see where I'm falling short or where I'm doing better. No. It was more about just trying to understand what was happening in the market. So a good example is that in 2013, when the Fed was consistently increasing interest rates, we call the taper tantrum, and obviously the equity markets were underperforming that time. Yes, clients called us to ask what's going on in the market. And when we explained to them that, uh, you know, there is a tightening happening from Fed, which is, might be happening too soon, it might be creating pressures on liquidity in the market, they understood but then they also knew that, you know, they were invested for long term and they didn't want to just look that as a, a piecemeal or isolated event to make any irrational changes to their portfolio. And Sandeep, when I came to India about three and a half, four years back, I was in a completely different environment. Uh, you know, uh, when I was working on the product side, always meeting with clients all the time with you, with uh, other members uh, of uh, the previous firm, uh, there were a lot of touch points with the clients. In fact, forget meeting first the client, but even in terms of our investment review, we looked at it week over week basis, month over month basis, what happened, what were the reasons, etc. And then when it came to client, you had to talk to through them uh, why suddenly certain portfolios were down or certain funds were down on a month over month basis. And the number of calls, I mean, you know, I, I was able to reach all my clients in the US in, in, in annually in a very, very easy fashion without having to really struggle from trying to get on the calendar because it was probably once a year, right? It made it a lot more simpler for us to do that concise and uh, conversation and review of the portfolios on an annual basis. And there was a stark contrast that when I came to India. Well, that's interesting to know uh, because, you know, we've always worked in India. I've always worked in India, worked with uh, ultra wealthy clients in India. And this has been probably the nature of the game that you are actively in touch you are making tweaks to the portfolio periodically and you're communicating very very actively and possibly it's because of the maturity of the market also in some sense uh, in the us potentially people have been in the money for a longer period of time here in india we're seeing the formal private banking also be around for very very short period i would say like barely two decades of real private banking that has been happening in India. and But sometimes, you know, when you think about Indian clients, I think it's not also universal. I remember early on when I started my career, you know, there is this place in Bombay, you're probably familiar with it. It's called the Dadar Parsi Colony. One time I happened to get on a cold call with somebody and this gentle Parsi old lady agreed to give me time of day and she agreed to meet me. And when I went to her house, this was literally a two-bedroom apartment, probably had not been sort of refurbished for the last two to three decades back then. And uh, we got talking about investing. I was asking her, do you invest in mutual funds? Do you invest in stocks, uh, etc. And the only thing she told me that she hadn't done anything quite actively, but her dad used to do investing uh, when he was around. And he had made some investments and they 
they are lying in a cupboard and she was kind enough to say that okay i'll show them to you and you can tell me what we can do of them and this was the time before really the the whole dmat boom happened when or or dmating was not compulsory back then and that's this just uh, reminds me how old i am but uh, uh, you, she brought out those paper shares this were shares of uh, what was then called telco now tata motors or tisco now called uh, tata steel and uh, we just started putting down the numbers on a piece of paper and i thought something looked amiss to me so i said you know i'll make a note of these things and i'll come back to you in a few days i went back to office and i actually put down the numbers on an excel sheet because what i thought i was making a mistake sitting in front of her was that i was overestimating the value of these shares but when i put it onto an excel sheet i realized that this was worth 24 25 crores of uh papers and literally like in a small file in a rickety godrej cupboard uh, there are these shares worth 25 crores and I'm, i was like not even sure whether she knew that she had 25 crores worth of stock and really possibly the only reason she could make that kind of wealth is because she was not actively looking at it and to your point i think you know yeah, she probably didn't look at it for a for a couple of years and uh, whereas your clients in the us would also not look at it for maybe a year or two years till the time you would ping them and say that it's time to do a review yeah so sandeep you're absolutely right about this i think what also made them calmer in terms of their response to several market events was that trust with the institution right so with whom you're dealing with your advisor the institution the type of analyst that work behind the scenes for you you kind of feel that sense of uh, confidence and responsibility that someone has taken uh, for you and that they really appreciate it so they knew that someone is working behind the scenes for them for their money that they didn't have to constantly keep looking at their portfolios yeah i think that's an excellent point i think uh, a lot of times we are forced into a position where we have to analyze things when we do not believe that the person handling our affairs is really up to mark and uh, uh, really therefore for us at deserve it's been very important to ensure that we have strong domain experts actually handling money for our clients so the the team which is uh, handling asset allocation for example is have been people who have been doing it for a couple of decades you on the other hand were handling our global investing practice uh, have been doing it clearly for more than a few decades uh, uh, similarly private equity credit evaluation so having deep expertise i think is very critical and potentially something that indian wealth managers or people who advise clients on their money have to potentially do and create those ecosystems yeah and the other thing uh, purav do i now also look at and contrast the time when we were there we were in private banking and now when we started in private banking and now is the amount of information and data which is being thrown at people right today you have cnbc bloomberg live information the tickers are scrolling you know every time there's a market fall all the channels are falling over themselves to pull attention of the user so you will see terms like blood bath and uh, you know uh, you know blood on the floor and those kind of terminologies being pulled at you then you have social media which is uh, twitter suddenly now you start getting you know updates on your feed yeah about what is happening to the markets and then there is whatsapp like you know i have like uh, i have friends in private banking who send me 
almost hourly updates on what has happened in the markets isn't this also in some sense contributing to the extra uh, thinking that clients are being asked to do because suddenly you're being put in a position where you're being thrown news at and you naturally have to react to it right no absolutely sandeep i agree with you the rampant access to information today uh, through social media through news channels even talking to friends at parties right uh, discussing your portfolios it's so funny i mentioned to you that uh, the other day uh, nothing against uh, you know my uh, the guy who works for me you know my driver but um, he mentioned that the stock markets are doing fantastic i mean you know that's the comment that he raised i mean this is the guy who's not invested in the markets at all but apparently he gets information from uh, some of his colleagues or whatever and he mentioned to me that the stock markets are doing great so this is really that that point where like you know everyone gets uh, so much information whether it's relevant to you or not and then what happens is let's talk about it sandeep 15 years back how many asset classes were there in india today right 20 or 15 years back people talked about real estate gold maybe a little bit about equity and mostly fixed deposit today we got more than 9 plus asset classes uh, thousands of investments so there is so much information and so much universe that exists today people are bound to be confused they don't know what to invest in and when you just invested for 3 months in something where you heard about it and then you realize that suddenly something else is doing much better i mean let's talk about uh, uh, cryptos as a great example like you know you just bought your bitcoin and suddenly if ethereum is up people are very uh, very excited to actually get out of bitcoin and maybe move to something else which has just gone up because there's so much information and so much so many choices available yeah i agree and also like reacting to those choices is something that you in- inherently enjoy right and you know i did this uh, piece a few uh, weeks ago and recently i was also reading uh, james clear talk about how we are congenitally engineered to react to situations you know and you know probably if you go back to the time of our ancestors there would be times when we would be in the jungle and we would have to react to the roar of a tiger or the uh, you know slide of a snake and stuff like that and you are mentally attuned to constantly being absorbing that information and reacting to it when it comes to investing you have to actually control that urge so it's almost this primal urge that we have to act that we have to pull back on to become great investors we talk about all of these guys like warren buffet and you know charlie munger and the key thing about them is that you know long term is really long it's not even like a few years it's a couple of decades you know how do you think we should think about that because here we have this primal urge on one side and we all know sort of what is right for the long term yeah and sandeep you bring up a great point about warren buffet for example right a lot of people think that oh i mean you know i mean yes he's a very successful businessman investor who's made ridiculous amount of wealth but if you look at the history most of his wealth did not come in his prime years it came in the last couple of decades and when we talk about long term yeah. investing uh, sandeep uh, you know uh, in terms of your time horizon have to be in that sense uh, be very focused right because may- maybe those returns or that that success will come down the road you know he didn't think when he started his journey that he's going to be multi billionaire he never had that vision right that he's going to be multi billionaire all he knew was that he wanted to invest in uh, good stocks absolutely. for long term so yeah absolutely i think 85% of his wealth like you hinted at got created after he was 65 which is the time you would probably retire in india right but uh, if you also like think about 
situations that have been happening around us we are seeing that the average holding period of a stock in the us markets is down from potentially 12 years to down to like barely 5 months right and that is indicative yeah. of a fact that people are being encouraged to trade a lot of it is probably because it's so easy to trade and on the other side there is this uh, gamification of instruments or gamification of applications that is happening and you know when you talk about warren buffet the one interesting thing i heard, read recently is the story of this gentleman called rick guerin who was who i didn't know and was the third partner of uh, yes. warren buffet and charlie munger he started off with them uh, started building berkshire hathaway though and he is potentially therefore as smart as uh, the other two guys in fact warren says that he was smarter than the two of us uh, the only difference was that this guy was into trading and margin trading at that and then one time came where his margins uh, probably blew through the roof mm. and he had to put in more money and he had to sell his berkshire hathaway stock to warren and charlie munger and as they say rest is history right so this trading thing is not really working yeah. out for people yeah no which is true i mean uh, you uh, you even take a note from uh, what uh, india's most popular broking house has come out and recently online broking house has come out and recently said that less than 1% of the people uh, traders yeah. actually make um, m- more money than the fixed deposits you know i mean that's incredible that's you know the other way to think about it is 99% of people actually do not make money equal to fixed deposits yeah and and where are fixed deposit rates today so you think about what kind of returns they are making yeah absolutely and yeah. you know the other thing is also it's not trading is not easy right it's not it's not something that you say that okay i will besides my day job trade in stocks and trade in asset classes buy and sell debt etc it's it's a full time commitment and then it with it it brings a lot of stress like i have seen and you've seen much better than me people really like go through hell of a lot of a stress when it comes to their trading positions imagine like you are you are this trader you are coasting along nicely and then out of the blue covid hits and before you know it your portfolio is down 70 80% yeah. because it's probably leveraged and then you're like showing up margin figuring out borrowing from your wife and stuff like that is this really just worth it if the returns are just not there around it yeah no absolutely and 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 and, and you know uh, history actually tells you that that uh, uh, see i i completely agree that why traders are in the market because they have a certain mandate from their investors right that they need to mm. do certain types of strategies which is why they are in the market but uh, yeah. at the same time uh if you look at the time horizon of what people have bought in uh held for long term even if you look at it uh, just before the global financial crisis and if you held it all the way through the years you would have still done better than a trader or than a fixed deposit and that's because market always rewards long term investment right yeah i think the the fact that compounding is really a wonder and it's it's so hard to explain compounding right you just only have to experience it because when somebody tells you that you know this money will grow at the rate of 12% a lot of people don't get excited with a number of 12% but the other way of saying it is that your money will double in 6 years you're like okay wait a minute that sounds like a good idea if i put 5 lakhs and it will become 10 lakhs in 6 years that's a great uh, return for me and actually it's really the same thing right it's that rule of 72 where uh, you actually see that the return of 12% delivered consistently over a period of time will mean that your money will naturally double 
but when it comes to our money we don't have the that horizon like you know one thing which you and i discussed and as parents about how we think about kids education right you and i both are thinking about how to prepare our kids for that particular university that in the us that we want to send them to but when it comes to their money we think very differently correct correct and that is how generally population yeah. thinks right they plan for all their goals uh, whether it's wedding buying a house uh, or making that foreign trip whatever they want to do right uh, but one thing they don't realize is that for meeting all those goals you will need to have money waiting for you at that period of time and so have you planned for that right yeah. so what is really this long term thing like when you were in the us and you would ask uh, folks to think about what tenure are they giving you money for what is like the 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 normal response that you would get from uh, your clients like would people say one or two years is long term or would they have like different horizons around what they perceive as being long term no i think for people long term really meant that something that they didn't have to look at the balances daily right that was one of the ways they looked at it uh, long term meant was yeah. that when we asked them uh, the question when we actually were profiling them or uh, trying to get them into the system uh, and when we go through the the different objectives the two most important questions sandeep we asked them was what was their risk tolerance meaning how much volatility can they uh, fathom through the years and also what was that time horizon they were willing to hold their investments so someone who was short term had clear mm-hmm. objectives that he needed the liquidity but people when they said long term for them it meant like a full market cycle which was like 7 plus years basically that is what long term meant for people wow. generally that i'm willing to hold my investment 7 plus years because that's what means to me long term that i'm willing to hold my investments for a full market cycle and that is how we really work with our clients back there that's amazing because you know sometimes we are conditioned to think of long term in a certain way like in india uh an instrument or especially on the equity side becomes long term after one year for tax purposes and uh, sometimes we conflate that with what is the long term for the portfolio we end up believing that more than one year is long term whereas like you said it's possibly one market cycle or more and in in most cases it's like 7 to 8 years in some cases and i really love the fact that you said that you know you would get people to uh sign yeah. on the mandate because it's almost like a pact that you're creating with yourself you are saying that i i am signing up for staying invested for the long term and every time i i think about the money that i've invested i think about whether i have crossed that time period or not and it sort of reminds me of the story of this uh, you know greek story of this guy called ulysses who had to tie himself up voluntarily so that he wouldn't get distracted by the sounds of the sirens and stay focused on getting through the journey and sometimes i think probably we also need a pact with ourselves sure. uh, as investors no are you absolutely right sandeep so that pact made it very important and that was the very first foundation of getting the clients indoor right we had to yeah. absolutely make sure that they had signed that pact which was to understand what their risk tolerance was and what for how many years they were willing to hold their investments for with us it yeah. was very important and when they actually yeah. signed that piece of paper because that time docusign was not really in the limelight but that time when they did sign that piece of paper you know they actually made a pact with that and they most yeah. of the times they stick they stuck to those uh, uh those uh mandates that uh, that they signed with us 
Yeah, and the best example, as as you once told me, and I didn't come up with this, is marriage is a fact in many ways, right? <laughs> so I hope Sumi is not listening to this, but uh, but the the fact is that uh, we are in it. Uh, we go through ups and downs, but we are committed to it because we signed up for something right at the at the very upfront. But the other thing, the other really interesting point that you brought up, Pura, was the fact that for you, long term is that pool of money where you don't need to look at the current value. Sure. And that to me is like a very powerful concept. Like you, you only therefore look at what you can control, which is the amount of money that you invested in it and the time that you held on to it. As investors, we don't have control on the, the, the number it will reflect today morning. Can I get up tomorrow morning and say, I want my portfolio to be worth 11 lakhs. Won't happen, right? Yeah. All I can control is one, how long can I invest? And secondly, how much will I invest? That's true. Absolutely. Uh, As you said, there are only two choices available to you when you get into the market and when you get out. Everything else that happens in between, it's completely out of your control. And which is why clients uh, delegate these responsibilities to experts because they manage the ups and the lows, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about experts, there is this other fact that investing is not only about equities, right? There are multiple different asset classes and they perform differently over different points of time. Just talk a little bit about why you think we should have diversified portfolios because that's the common question that we get. We are on the back of a very strong bull run on the equities market uh, right now. When it comes to my long-term money, why shouldn't I just put that all of that into equity and just forget about it? Why should I even care for fixed income, international equity, gold, and other such instruments when I can just probably put it into equities and just sleep over it. Sure. And also people always think about equities more because that is what flashes in front of their eyes most of the times, right? It's great you talk point. about markets. Yeah. You just talk about the Sensex, yeah. the Nifty, the S&P 500. But what people fail to see is that uh, no two asset classes, when you take bonds or stocks on a year-over-year basis, they perform the same. Let's take a good example of 2018, for example. That was a bad year because globally, Fed was tightening interest rates very quickly and equities Mm. underperformed generally globally. And the best performing Mm. asset class was cash, actually, money market instruments. And who would have thought that cash would be the best performing asset class globally in 2018? You look at 2013, post-2013, after the Fed started tightening, the real estate REITs, investments, were the best performing asset class for the next two years. And this is what happens because we are always in a cycle. Every asset class goes through its own cycle. Equities follows uh, the economic cycle. Bond has its own cycle. Uh, hmm. You know, currencies are more volatile and more kind of uh, uh, fluid in terms of how they trade basis on demand and supply. So there is constantly always this uh, cycle or cyclical factor that exists for different asset classes. And they work at their yeah. own pace and for their own merits, Right. And which is why we always try to look at what correlation exists between these asset classes, right? How they behave with each yeah. other. When equities are going higher, most likely your bonds are underperforming. But there will be a year when bonds are overperforming or outperforming, your equities will be underperforming. Yeah, and there's a there's a philosophical point there, right? Because your you can't put your dreams or your aspirations on hold just because one asset class, which is equities, didn't do well in a particular year. Right? Yeah. You have to get to a certain point. And therefore, even with integrated portfolios, the objective that we've had has been to 
have uncorrelated asset classes in the portfolio so that we are able to deliver performance consistently over a period of time and that consistency of performance is key to compounding right because it's not important to get 20% return in one year and be down 10% the next year it's more important to get 10 to 12% consistently on your money for a long period of time because that's really when the money compounds the other thing i see is that you know sometimes when we go in for very aggressive portfolios or only one asset class type mm-hmm. of portfolios the volatility or the downside in the portfolio increases significantly and uh, when when that particular asset class is not doing well and that then causes us to break out of our investing journey i've had you know i remember uh, the time of 2008 when really coming on the back of 2004 to 2007 a huge bull run had happened in the markets you know everyone had practically started allocating money only to equities and at the bottom of 2008 when the lehman crisis happened into yeah. early 2009 a lot of investors came back and said sandeep i have made the mistake of my life i will never put money into equities because they lost like i remember kotak stock i think if i'm not wrong yeah. was down like 90% yeah. from uh, and you think about that that number just blows your mind like how can a stock like kotak mahindra bank which is a bank established well run etc be down 90% but it was and then people who lost that money sort of swore to themselves that they will never invest into equities and then through from 2009 the rally that they missed mm. was another so getting the right asset allocation so that you don't lose money yep. more than what you can tolerate is very important right correct sandeep and as you said uh, with the mix of bonds and gold in your portfolio yes it may not sound too sexy to you right you owning bonds or gold they don't move mm. much but when times like you can't 2008 talk about it at parties you can't go and say <laughs> i have a, a guilt fund in my portfolio right so. correct people don't talk about bitcoins now not really gold because they think that's the new gold according to them but yeah. uh, when you have gold or bonds in your portfolio when events like 2008 or 2020 happen when your portfolio yeah. is going down you will that downside you will have in your portfolio will be a lot less than if you were to hold 100% equity and sandeep we also know that if you're down 50% in your equity it doesn't take 50% to go back up it takes a lot more than 50% to go back up so having these it has to double exactly. to go back up so which is why having gold yeah. and bonds in your portfolio it helps you lower the downside and so that your your recovery time to come back to break even is a lot shorter than owning 100% equities so i love the fact that in ips we yeah. do have uh, for the most aggressive we own bonds and gold i think it's a very smart thing to do uh, may not sound sexy again yeah, as i said yeah. but i think it's the right thing to do from clients perspective but the one thing i struggle about when it comes to our integrated portfolios is that we've gone up out of our way to make them completely liquid right in the sense that you can exit them at any point and uh, whereas on the other side you know we see quantum wealth being created when you can't break out of an instrument very easily like think about real estate okay So if you if you were to just put a now it on paper the returns on real estate haven't been exciting okay you'd probably made like six seven eight percent uh, even in a city like Bombay if you for the last fifteen twenty years but the reason people make a lot of money is because it's just so hard to sell a property right you just have to find the buyer then uh, do the process documentation etc sometimes it falls off in that period. and then when you look at over a 10 15 year period you you say like oh my god i have made a lot of money i put in 50 lakhs and be- become worth 1 crore isn't that exit barrier an important part 
of the journey. I, I think it's a very important part, just knowing at how the investor behavior works as of today in the light of the amount of information mm. and options available. I wish there were instruments where you could hold your uh, liquid assets or market assets, but you're not allowed to break them for a long period of time. You know, I always talk to you about the retirement market in the US, which is so vibrant, right? From the time you get into yeah. your work stream, you invest into 401k plans and individual retirement accounts. They are called IRS because they are retirement accounts. And you can't break these until you actually retire. You break them, you got to pay hefty penalty. Uh, on top of that, you pay taxes immediately on the entire corpus. So I feel sometimes these having these instruments actually deters you from making those impulsive decisions that you otherwise would have made thinking that, let me just get out of this stock because I've made great money. Let me go to the next one, try to chase that one. You know, these things would not happen, yeah. then, I would feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I see this even in a lot of other instruments, especially with fund managers who bring in heavy exit loads. I've seen like even the ultra wealthy clients not exit out of those instruments. And when we look at it five years later, you're like, oh, I made a lot of money. And the returns per se may not be exciting, but the, you made a lot of capital simply because you couldn't exit it very easily. And having that like exit barrier in many ways is important. So if, if we don't have the same things like a Roth IRA or a 401k, potentially we should create that exit barrier in our mind and break into that piggy bank only if like it's an extreme uh, situation. Yeah, you're spot on to that. I mean, India does have something similar called EPF, but the returns are, you know, you're, everyone gets the same size kind of a fit all, you know, sort of an approach, right? Yeah. Versus in, in the foreign countries where you have the retirement plans, they, lay, they do let you take the risk as per your risk profile, right? So if you want to be 100% equity, you could be 100% equity, which I think is a fair game because if an investor is willing to take that risk through his retirement, he should be allowed to. I hope that we can create something similar out here in India where we can, uh, you know. Hopefully it's uh, it's early days for India and I'm quite confident that newer mechanisms will emerge for people to manage their money and really get wealthy, meaningfully wealthy. Because you see a lot of people who like actually made real wealth are people who either by choice or by default couldn't exit their portfolio and therefore held on to it. I think in some ways entrepreneurship or working at a startup and getting ESOPs is a part of the same game, right? You're It's not a very liquid asset. You can't buy and sell it. And therefore you're holding it. You continue to work on a day-to-day basis. And then you know at some point that oh, it, it became worth uh, quite a lot what what worries me therefore is that uh, right now on the other hand is that a lot of us look up to people who we think are wealthy but actually may not be and you know you're suddenly this spate of people giving me advice on social media about what to do with my money where in fact we should be looking at people who really lived the game like Warren Buffet over a really long period of time one thing I've learned if anything and you know I made my own mistakes as well when I started my journey in the U.S. I also tried to be pretty impulsive in the beginning and, uh, you know, tried to cut corners and try to move between uh, assets and asset classes, try to make the most because, you know, I was a young guy that time and, you know, I wanted to take advantage of what was available out there. And we had so many people to listen to, right? I mean, the firm that I worked at had 900 analysts. So the sky is the limit what you can listen to every day. So I made my own mistakes and I've learned how I've suffered on my returns. But I did actually started following one of the guys, uh, you know, during my early days. And uh, he mentioned one thing was that if you had to look at your portfolio every day, meaning that you were not sleeping at night properly, if you're not uh, having a good night's sleep or something, 
uh, that means you were not in the right mix. That means there was something wrong either with your understanding or the type of portfolio you were invested in. The, both of them were not in sync with each other, and which is what you had to make change to. Either you get your senses back to where it needs to be, or you change your portfolio to where you are able to sleep at night and can carry out your day-to-day task, whatever duties you're doing, your job, etc. So that got me straightened out actually. And uh, since that time, uh, I've not looked back actually. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, I I genuinely do believe that there are smart people who invest, but the really smart people invest for the really long term, and that's potentially what I'm taking away today. Uh, Purav, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Uh, Hopefully in the subsequent episodes of Insider Investing, we'll talk more about different parts of uh, investing uh, and we'll lean into your global experience. But this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. Same here, Sandeep. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation today. We hope you enjoyed tuning in today and got some great takeaways. New episodes of this podcast are out every alternate Thursday. You can listen to the episode on our website or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you wish to reach out to us, follow Deserve on LinkedIn or you can write to us at social at deserve.in.